everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Fan Zone. Whoop de fucking do. Here we are. Uh, this is going to be an interesting one. I'm excited. Uh, my name is Tim. Hello. Uh, yeah, this is going to be a very interesting match. We've got Chris Diaz uh, versus Andrew Barr, both uh, debut players in Fan Zone and debate at Multiplex in Generals. Um, we know Andrew Barr well around these parts and the trivia type side of things but never in the uh debate side of things and chris diaz uh i believe this is his multiplex debut so uh this will be interesting cody you're here this is your first fan zone welcome are you excited um sure i'm excited i'm excited to be uh judging with uh, the arkham knights like that's exciting um <laughs> And I'm excited for Chris to be here. Andrew Barr is a totally different story. Um, I don't know how long I can hear those pretentious takes for four rounds, but I will judge it fairly. I will judge it down the line. Chris, but if you could knock him out, that'd be great because he's a hack. <laughs> okay. Uh, Robert Parker is also here. I believe this is is, uh, are, is this your judging debut? No, I've done well okay. in this is my first fan zone, but yeah. I've I've done uh nerdgasm. Well, okay, well perfect. You've had a nerdgasm before. Interesting, but you're here judging for fans. Num numerous times, Tim. Yes. <laughs> and are you excited? I'm excited. how are you are you are you guys good you guys good? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm good, yeah. Good. That, that's it. Good. I've had some emotional <laughs> stuff the last two days. Uh, apparently, yeah. Tim has had way more. So, yeah. yeah, not to date this video, but The Last of Us Two came out yesterday. So it's uh, it's been a roller coaster of a week. Uh, but that's not going to stop us from having fun at this fan zone match. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's get into it right away. Let's start by bringing in our competitors today. Let's start with uh, Chris. Welcome. You are here for your first match of Fan Zone. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. This is a debate that should be fun. A lot of back and forth, but this is stuff I'm pretty passionate about. Definitely feel the category. Perfect. Awesome. All right. And then let's bring in Mr. Barr, apparently a hack, according to Cody Newberry. I don't know where this thing started, but apparently it has risen to extreme proportions. Mr. Barr, how are you feeling about your multiplex debate debut? I'm going to hack it up. Oh. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so the way that this is going to work, um, we have drafted categories. The competitors have drafted categories. Uh, we gave them questions, and then they answered said questions. So they are going to argue those answers. And uh, here's how it's going to work. There are going to be one-minute openings for each competitor, and then a five-minute free-form debate along with a uh, one-minute closing then. The judges will then decide who is the winner of the question. First person to three is the winner. If it does end in a tie after our four prep questions, we will go to a uh, speed round question. Are there any questions from the competitors as we get going? Nope. All right. Nope. So first category is in musicals. Musicals is the category. Uh, the question is, best musical number in a classic musical. Uh, so we are going to start with Andrew Barr, 
since he had uh, drafted this category. Andrew, you have one minute to open your argument as soon as you start talking. All right, so the greatest musical of all time in movie form, at least, is West Side Story. So it would only make sense that the greatest musical number would come from that same movie. And it is the electrifying song and dance moment that is America. This is a great moment between Bernardo and Anita, as well as uh, the women in the Sharks and the men in the Sharks. It is a great back and forth piece with amazing dancing that is beautifully captured and there's so much energy that is just so infectious that everyone is having a blast making this and you can tell and it it is like a sponge you were just soaking it in but it also talks about a lot of serious subject matter uh, at the time and still relevant today honestly so with that honestly it's the best I'm done. All right. About five seconds early. Chris, it is now your turn. One minute to open your argument. When you start talking, I'll come in when you have 10 seconds left. Okay. When you come to think of great music, you think of something that has catchy tunes, catchy choreography, great acting, and stuff that will leave you humming for day. And it's singing rain from the movie Singing Rain, one of the best musicals of all time. It was Gene Kelly got coming back for his date with his Girlfriend and he just and it's mania. He starts dancing, humming like he's singing the rain and he does up with her ballad. Oh, the old catchy and tune like when you see a moment that sticks in your mind, sing the rain for a tune. Uh, sing in the rain, I sing in the rain. My boy is morning, a happy and to the choreography start with the rain, to the smiling face, to the little joke like him dancing in the part of the police offering him and he does that to thing and he walks away like and it. It's been used in so many musicals to death, and there's so much more argument to talk about the cleverness of it and the way it memorable. You know the music, you know the lyrics, you know the theme, you know everything that made it musical great. I can see my argument because there's a lot to say about this. All right. So, both competitors leaving about five seconds on the board. Guys, we are now going to go into five minutes of freeform. Remember, uh, even back and forth. If you talk for 30 seconds, then let your competitor talk for 30 seconds. I will come in and tell you to shush if you are filibustering five minutes when one of you starts talking. All right, so you mentioned how Singing in the Rain is one of the catchiest, most hummable songs in musicals. So is America. It's probably the song that most people know from that movie without even knowing that it's from the movie. And you also mentioned can the Can you? Mm -hmm. Can I? Yeah, absolutely. Can, can you? Can you sing the whole song from start to finish? Can you remember one lyric? In the oh my song? gosh. Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion. Let it sink back in the ocean. The lyrics I of that If we go if we go based on just that alone. And then we and then you Okay, and then let's talk about it. You say a, a great song. Let's talk about the thing that when you realize the truth behind it, make the song lose their power. Besides Anita. The actress that played Anita Vita Marina, all the other actors, Trini Bernardo, Trini Marina, and other things, are not Puerto Rican. They put on brown, brown makeup to make them look Puerto Rican. It negates the powerfulness of the song. It ruined the point of the song. You think, and it's a song doing it back and forth about Puerto Rican. There another song, 
early on in the movie that does a better job of deoxygenizing that talk about the judicial system much more serious matter. America's not about the judicial system, though. America's not about the judicial system. And the fact that Rita Moreno is is of that heritage actually does help. Let's talk. Right. But it doesn't negate the fact that when you have people talking about, like, Puerto Rican between both, it ruins fashion when you realize not all of them are Puerto Rican descent. And especially in 1960, that ruined the point in the song. The song is about, you know, hey, we like it. In terms of the story, in terms of in terms of the story, yes, it does help in the history of of the uh, of 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 um like the like I can't speak today. It does hurt in the history of whitewashing, but when it comes to the story itself, they are from Puerto Rico, and you also mm-hmm. mentioned Rita Moreno. Um, but it's not about the judicial system; it's about it, yeah, it's about the American dream and how it differs from what you're told. And also, it, it's about your heritage, and the heritage is important to these two characters, and the way that they go back and forth about like our heritage versus the, our opportunity is so poignant, and it still resonates today. But it, some of the, especially later, it's somewhat outdated, even especially today, but working on today. And when you think of Dana Rain, it's classic, the tuna memorable, geography is great, the part of stuff are really good, like, and it what you see in classic musical number. American is great, but there are songs that are better in West Side Story than America. Somewhere is much better. The Archer Trotsky, the Jet songs, school is better. Like those songs you get into your head more than America. When you especially when you look at like best song for musical today, America is number thirty four AFI Trump one hundred list. Singing rank is number three. Somewhere is much higher than that. And that's because the most memorable song. They bring right, you joy and light with me today. But the AFI list has Tootsie on its hot top 100 movies of all time. So the AFI list means Jack in this in this moment. But and when you think of it, pu- you add people give like... Me, give, give me just a few seconds. You talked yeah. about the puddles. There are so many puddles. It is overused in that sequence. You see him splashing through it a couple times. Great. But he keeps going and going and going and, and he, going and going. And then he go on and a lamp. He used, like, he go back and forth. He just because you like, more iconic doesn't mean it's better. When you look at stuff outside of the movie, like, robot units, run step out, use some idea, flee, everything, it's more iconic. Even People if it's America over and over again. It's been a but huge not as great, great topic. Yeah, but one minute. Yeah, people today, what the most classic musical number it is in the main because the iconic taking it. People to hunt I think way more than America. Like America Larry are so outdated. And so like especially when watching actually does a better job of doing it. Here's the other thing that makes here's the other thing that makes America so great is the time signature that they use. It is in six eight time, which means that it's in two beats. And that is the perfect kind of time signature for a retort song. One person has their side, one person has the other side. And the dancing is amazing. It is all in these wide but no, it's not because it's a lot slower and it's not as energetic. Gene Kelly and but you that, tell is what through that dance. Yeah. But he also during the time he was shooting that he did it with 113 temperature. He still make it look amazing. Cool. Tom Cruise top from it one building to one building with a broken up, foot. It held up much time. better. Time. And he held up much better. Time. 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 Okay. Um <laughs> 
Chris, you are going to get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Okay, you think a classic musical moment for movie thing may come to mind because you're catching it to the times that I turn it to two stuff that the rain, the dancing dancer birds with the umbrella, the little ironic humor. It is what you think of classic musical. America's great, but you negate the fact that not every actor in the song is Puerto Rican. It really ruined the fact. The dance is much better used in the mumble dance. They are more catchy from somewhere. The artists are trusty, cool, everything. Sing the main and the iconic. You ask somebody today, what is the song that you think of it? Sing the main, not America. America's good, but there's so many factors that keep it from being great. And sorry, but sing the main, I sing the main. People just sing every song of this, I'm happy again. It's more memorable, more catchy. And the question is, what is the most memorable song? That's right, America is just a good song ruined by the fact that not all the actors put it can negate the powerlessness of the lyrics itself. Time. All right. Bar, you have one minute to start your argument, or close your argument, I'm sorry, when you okay. start talking. The question isn't most memorable song, and even if it was, I would still pick America over, over Singing in the Rain. Um, the, I already talked about how the time signature is the perfect kind of time signature to make this, but the dancing in this scene is so well captured and it's so energetic and it's just so great to see how much fun that all these people are having. Whereas with singing in the rain, you can, t you can feel that Gene Kelly's not feeling it a hundred percent. And there it's once again, it's a lot of the same thing going on over and over and over again with some, okay tap dancing when you compare it to a lot of gene kelly's other stuff especially in its own movie it's not even the best it's not even the best scene from that movie make them laugh is better but the thing once again the thing is the beauty of the construction of america and i concede my time okay all right um Here's how this is going to go. Uh, I will start, um, and I will say I'm going to give my point to Barr. Uh, the question was, uh, best musical number in a classic musical? To me, that has to do with everything about the scene from the movie. I heard a lot from Chris about how good and catchy and memorable the song is, but when it came to the actual scene and the number and everything uh, Kelly's doing, Barr kind of shot that down and explained why America was a great musical number, not just a catchy song, but a great number in the movie as well. So I'm going to give my point to Barr. Cody, where are you going? His insult against Singing in the Rain and Tootsie almost cost him this point, but I would also give the point to Barr just because the overall, there was a lot of catchiness. There was a lot of, like, uh, back and forth why they're, like, I understand, like, the actors not being what they are, but it's still the message of the song was good, so Barr gets my point. Okay, uh, so that means Barr does get the first point. Robert, you didn't get to vote on this one. Where are you leaning and why? Uh, I actually also would have given it to Barr. I think Chris's uh, biggest offense against Barr was the Puerto Rican heritage of the actors and actresses in the scene, and I think Barr actually countered that really well, justifying it with the filmmaking of the time and how that isn't really a dig against the number itself, just more so it, like cast into the movie and how it was made at the time. Uh, so I would have also given that one to Barr. All right, 
so uh, Bar does get the first point. We are going to move on to question number two. Okay, so uh, the second question is in the category of Wizarding World. This is a category that Chris drafted, um, and so he will be going first. The question is, who is the best Hogwarts professor? Uh, so, Chris, you will be going first on this one. You get one minute to start your argument when you start talking. Okay, when it comes to Harry Potter, when we think of the best professor, the professor that the best teacher, the inspired this student, and well helped him out in this situation. And despite being only for one year, it Remus Lupin. Remus Lupin was friend of Harry Potter, Harry Potter father, and he also came in during Harry Potter third year. He brought a lot to what he did for to defend the dog, but during the time with Black Lots active for January lockup. He he helped him to encourage him to do better. He helped never get out of his security. He helped Harry survive third year. Without him, Harry would have had survived third year without the patron of patron. He probably would have been dead or Ralph Solar due to dementia. Not to help Harry find out to do the best year is black. He does a lot for his student how to be inventing, how to do practical. He makes his class fun inventing compared to the rest of defense and art. The more I to go into, but when you see a best overall professor, Remus Lupin is the best overall professor because what he did during the time he was 10 years. Two, one, time. Okay, good opening. Uh, let's move over to Bar. You have one minute to start when you start talking. What makes a great professor? It's someone who's knowledgeable in the uh, in what they're teaching. It is someone that the students respect. It is someone who has a really good reputation with uh, with the surrounding uh, world. The person who does that the best is Professor McGonagall. Professor McGonagall is one of the most respected professors in Hogwarts. She's been around for kind. She's got kind of got the same amount of respect as Dumbledore. Uh, the students trust her. The students trust them to have her back, and she does. But she's also very knowledgeable in what she is teaching to her students. And with all of that, that's what makes a great professor. The problem is that Lupin, he misses a lot. I'm going to get seen by time. All right. All right, so Lupin versus McGonagall. Five minutes free. Uh when you guys start talking. <coughs> All right. You go for a tangent. Sure. The, problem, the problem with Lupin is that he's gone for days on end every month as a professor. And substitutes can only do so much. Substitute, like, look at them when Snape. When Snape took over and he, they were doing the, uh, the hinky punk lesson. They, the students had to play catch up because Lupin wasn't there. But at the same time, when you look at what Lupin done for his student, especially in terms of Neville and Harry, he helped them overcome this stuff. Neville was insecure during the time before the event of the Phoenix, before everything else, and Lupin helped him with the Bogart, by him to face the fierce Snape. And no other defensive dot off professor done before. Let's go over defensive dot off professor. Well, was never any carrot. He didn't teach much. Go on, you walk up, but just didn't know what the hell he was doing. Lupin done a lot. Let all the fate fan. Without him, Harry would not have survived his third year at Hogwarts. He had a problem with dementia. Lupin taught him one-on-one -on -one how to 
learned to patrol the patrol but later on help the DA, the Dumbledore Army know how to do it. But but help in the Battle of Harvard at the during the end of the film and fake the dementia. So McGonagall didn't help the Dumbledore's army? Because here's and, the thing, she's also she but, also was inspirational to her students. There's a reason that they came to her all of the time. She saw potential in her students. When also, like when Harry t went on the broom for the first time, she was mm -hmm. like, "I see potential in him. He could be a great seeker in the in the Quidditch games, things like that." I will also say when Harry went to her about the Philosopher's Stone, she said it was safe. She didn't do go along with him and help him out. She just said, you know. You don't know what you're talking about. The Philosopher's Stone estate. Go on with your life. She didn't do anything. Also, when Little Boy Walker went charge, she encouraged him to go down to Chamber of Secrets. It's all based on the movie. She let him fix Harry's arm. She sent Harry as a levy to forbidden for it at detention. With no teacher in the right mind would send a levy kid to the forbidden for it. She also, when we talk about the movie, if you're talking about the book, that is a different conversation. In the book, see much good greater fat. In the movie, Sarah is presented as Ben. Remember, you to the greater fat. You see his relationship with Harry. You see how he helped him, especially on a train. Right. And but not and like, learning to practice Patronus. Right. But not not mentioning <laughs> that he's. I mean, like not really kind of cluing in the students that he's a werewolf. <laughs> sorry, I just heard a really loud bang outside. I'm so sorry, guys. Um. But like the danger that Lupin put his students in is also kind of, is also kind of insane. But the other thing that um, Lupin doesn't have, once again, is consistency. And McGonagall not only has the uh, not only has consistency through one film, she has consistency through all of them. Really? She definitely fought for Dumbledore's army. She's an inspiration to those students. But when you ask, like, what, who does they mention most for that invited? Lupin been mentioned. Dean Thomas say Lupin was the best teacher they ever had. And it's by the fact that when you ask who invited, who was a great teacher, especially in the history of lack of great teacher in the Defense of Art. We even get to see things about Defense of Art and Half-Blood Prince. So it, Lupin was the most consistent. He taught them to the practice effect, reflected later on in the light when other teachers were not, especially at I Moody Umbridge, but did it do much? He taught them to face their fear to overcome their thoughts. To, to, he gave them counsel. He gave them confidence in the fact of what they were doing. And when the truth came out about he welfare, he put his student safety first and decided to resign rather than continue on and allow to be in danger him. That is what the professor does. Yeah, he yeah, had only one year, but what he does during 10 years, more than what Mark Donnacook did. One minute. On the movie. One minute. The question and is like, not the bar gets the last minute. The question is not who's the best professor of the dark arts. You keep bringing the fact that she that he is the best of the professor of the dark arts up. That is not the question. It is best professor. She inspires her students. She's knowledgeable in what she knows. She is. She does very well in passing on that knowledge, and she stands up for the students. When Umbridge was making Harry write in his own blood, who's the one who came up to defend him? It's McGonagall. McGonagall, time and time again in this series, has been a huge help to everyone around her, like a good professor does, because she loves her students, she respects them, and she sees potential in them in both their their personality, their spirit, and as students. Plus, it's uh, Maggie Smith, who's amazing. So, Time. <laughs> I know it doesn't All matter. Right. Uh, bar, 
you are going to go first with your closing one minute when you start talking. <clears throat> the question is best Hogwarts professor. And when it comes to being a professor, McGonagall time and time again proves why she's so well-respected and why she is a great professor. She stands up for her students. She knows what she's talking about and she's able to pass it down and she does it very well. She has the caring attitude, the nurturing attitude, and the overall defensiveness that a really good professor should have. And with that, Lupin is not there consistently. He's missing days on end. His students are falling behind because of that. And there are other things that he's keeping that puts them in danger. McGonagall is the best professor. All right. Ending a couple seconds early. Chris, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. So we talk about Black Harvard professor. It Raymond Lupin is based off the movie. He is the professor. He helped heavy learn the professor to turn it. He helps his students be the better than to help never get over insecurity. When we think of a bad father of a professor that people look up to, Raymond Lupin began often. McGonagall is great, but in terms of the movie, she doesn't get shown why she made that great. She made great decisions that the movie kind of ruined what made her so great. Raymond Lupin, especially based on one movie alone, done a lot that helps his student later on in life. Harry learned the friendship between him. him, we wouldn't have the rest of the Harry Potter movie. We wouldn't have Harry as a character because he had the defense against the Dementors. And without him, Harry wouldn't have a father figure besides Sirius to talk to about his parents. He been there for Harry. He named Harry his, his job child. He also helped his student with everything they need to know in life that, that you need your practical. Bye. Of a theatrical, a magic. And that would make a good professor, though, that is by your student, do All right. Bring the judges back in. Um, good Robert, your uh, vote didn't count last time, so we'll go to you first on this one. All right. This was actually. Honestly, pretty tough because I think it, if you ask this question, these are probably going to be the most, the two, the two most picked answers. Um, I think Chris did a really good job of arguing like best defense against the professor and like biggest impact on the story with the smaller amount of time. But I think Barr did a little bit better job of arguing like the specifics of being a professor. Like Chris definitely talked about like what Lupin does for specific characters, uh, but. Barr had a really good dig about the inconsistency and how his students are falling behind, and that kind of makes him a bad teacher, and there was never really a defense against that. There was never really a counter to that by Chris, so I have to go to Barr uh, for those reasons, but it was close. Both gave some really good arguments. I just think that Barr did a little bit of a better job at uh, arguing the specifics, the intricacies of the question. All right. Um, I'll go next. I agree. Uh, literally, you stole the words right out of my mouth. I think Chris did a great job at talking about um, why Lupin is such a good character and such a good presence in the Harry Potter universe. And without him, there would be a lot of things that wouldn't happen. Uh, but I think what you said, Robert, Barr's uh, kind of dig on Lupin of why he's not a great professor specifically um, took a lot of weight for me. Um, 
but I did like Chris's argument about how he helps his students and how he helped Harry and Neville and all of them uh, get over a lot of stuff. So I, but I do give my point to Barr in the end. Uh, with, so with that, Barr gets the uh, second point. Cody, you didn't get to vote. Where would you have uh, leaned? I was waiting for um, the worst thing this professor gets turned into is a cat. The other is a werewolf that will rip your face off, but they never said those moments. But all in all, I have to give it to Barr just because of his overall, like, I think he broke it down better as why a professor, why a teacher, versus why what they did for the students is great, but not not for the job of teacher. So I have to give it to Barr. All right. So uh, we are going to move on to the hey, Bob, third... good job. That went really good. Thank you, man. I honestly thought I lost. I'm going to be honest. No, that was a, that was a very good one. Uh, we are going to move on to the third question, which is in the category of Disney. And the question is, who is the worst Disney princess? Oh, boy. My wife has thoughts over here on the couch. Far <laughs> um, drafted this one, so he's going to go first. Bar, you have one minute when you start talking. There are a lot of great Disney princesses with a lot of great different personalities, but the one who's kind of not only a dumbass, but a blank slate is Snow White. Uh, Snow White, I can't really even describe what her personality is. Um, she puts herself in danger at one point because she doesn't listen. Uh, and then, like, she's, one like, her personality trait is that she's the fairest of them all, which basically means that she's the most beautiful person in, like, the kingdom. Not really a lot going on behind Snow White as compared to a lot of the other Disney princesses. And with that, I'm going to concede the rest of my time. Okay. Bar concedes about 15 seconds. Chris. <sighs> You now have one minute to open your argument. Who is the worst Disney princess? When it comes to Disney princesses, you look at those in a spiral model, you think of those who movies based around them, and you think of those who had great personality. The one that comes to mind, especially in a movie that is okay about is Princess Aurora, aka Sleeping Beach. The Princess Aurora, the more boring character there is, the no personality. She is a common copy of Snow White. She wants her prince to come. She dances the forest animal. She just dances around all day. She doesn't do anything. That most of the movie more focused on the good fairies and Melissa and Prince Priscilla and her father and his father and such than Princess Aurora. She makes dumb decisions, especially with the spinning wheel scene. She just wants a prince. She don't want to find love. She believed that she met somebody one upon a dream. Did nothing to it. Nobody at least had one thing going on with her that made her Five, more interested than Prince of Three, two, one. All right, time. All right. Princess Aurora versus Princess... Princess Snow White? Princess Snow White? Yeah, that's how you would say yeah. it. Uh, five minutes when you guys start talking. Okay. I, I don't. I don't understand the the idea of, of Aurora having no personality at all. She's 
you can tell that she has a creative side when she's dancing with the animals because the way that she dresses but, them up as like that human figure and is having a lot of fun with it. Okay, but that is a common copy of Snow White. Snow White also had fun with the animals. She had big stuff. She had she had stuff going on. She even cleaned the house to do stuff despite her presence. She inspired Grumpy to actually become more happy and be more personality. Snow White done a bunch of stuff. She invite almost all the movie up until the Poison Apple. Prince of War, it barely focused on half the movie. It's a good fairy and militia. That made her point because she is boring. She got no personality. She got one decent song and one decent thing with Prince Philip. And that is it. No way at least it's shown throughout the movie. She get moments that you fall in love with her. The someday my prince will come moment. The thing with her in the drug dancing. Like stuff that make you realize why you want her to succeed and the evil queen to lose. I'm sorry that Sleeping Beauty got cursed and uh, cursed and forced to sleep throughout uh, a lot of her story. That's not her fault. That's that that doesn't mean that she's not that she doesn't have any personality. It's she got hypnotized. That if you watch that scene where she pricks the spinning wheel, she's entranced. She's hypnotized. It's not like she went, "Ooh, what's that? A spinning wheel? Pricks snooze." It's not her fault. Whereas with Snow White. She let the witch in. The, the dwarves told her, don't let anyone in. Don't trust strangers. And what does she do? She does exactly the opposite. That's her choice. But that because her good nature, the, the fact that she's willing to trust anybody. But when you look at, if I think more model, no way you're much better role model than Prince of Orange. Really it's a MacGuffin in a movie, for goodness sake. Because most of the movie focused on Melissa Finn and the Good Fairy and Prince Fela and the family bizarre comics scene. Like it's just like there's nothing to her. There's that one scene and just like I read Melissa Finn win in the end because I was so by Prince Warren. Not even everybody today would put on a royal concert. They would put on Snow White. Even outside Sleeping Beauty in movie like Melissa Finn, Roy is still boring character. Snow White is used better as a Disney princess because her personality. The fact that she will do anything, given to bad circumstances, going on in her life to do better in life. The and Huntsman has a better role in Snow White than the Huntsman, though. So, tell me what besides her creativity, what else makes Princess Aurora fascinating more than Snow White? I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked that question because mm -hmm. in Snow White, Snow White sees the prince and he's and she's like automatically kind of falls in love with him. Whereas with Sleeping Beauty, when they first meet during that Once Upon a Dream sequence, she's like, "Who who are you?" Like I'm not like she doesn't automatically fall in love with him, which was the trope of Disney princesses. She's smart enough to be like, "I don't know you. Why am why do I have to talk to you? Why are you, like wh like what are you doing here?" She's smarter than Snow White is. But that one small scene, there's no way still have, like, she's nice, she's kind. She's willing to do anything, given the bad circumstances she has. She gives the dwarf happiness and hope. She brings Grumpy out his grumpiness, for one. She does much more than what Princess Roar did. Princess Roar did just shit. Because the only dance with the prince, she kind of fell in love with the prince. And then rest of the movie, she asleep. It all focused on the good family Elizabeth because Roy is a MacGuffin. The thing that annoys most, a damsel in distress that needs saving. Nobody at least, uh, up until the point of the One apple, minute. 
you what she have around Trinity with her friend to make use of what has given her to that she's a much better role model she is you realize you why date anybody would fall in love with her what that's shit and the movie even acknowledge it by not showing her that much in the movie like it's just the good fairy movie it should be called good the good fairy movie a melissa bit movie right we got later on like that it just like everything I, 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 I can't i cannot accept the idea that snow white is the better role model when she is the exact case for stranger danger she she bought she's like trusted this stranger and is who's like here have an apple there's nothing wrong with it side glance side glance of course there was something wrong with it and instead of being smart she was like, ooh, what, an apple? Oh, it makes my dreams come true? Okay, then. <laughs> Snooze. They both sleep. Time. L.A.T. Reddit and McGuffin. Time. <laughs> Strike that last comment. Um, okay, Chris, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. <sighs> okay. We all would agree, did any princess back during the, the older age was a decade, but Hey, Snow White is the worst robot ever, and Princess McGuffin, who does really nothing in the movie that not the movie is even interested in her, made her the worst sentence character. She's boring, she has little to no personality. She brought the most of the movie that daydream. She doesn't do anything. And then she falls asleep, and then the whole movie turns into Princess, Prince Philip, Melissa, a good fairy, which it should be called. Even outside the Disney movie, Melissa does even worse. Snow White elite. You know why people would fall in love with her. her good personality, her lovingness. To feel it, she really is that anybody to bring grumpy out of grumpiness. What made anybody fall in love with her? Anybody would dress up as Snow White more than Princess Aurora because nobody liked Princess Aurora. Princess Aurora on the list, at the bottom list because she's boring. The MacGuffin. So, hello, good MacGuffin. Bye, good MacGuffin. Go back to where you came from. <laughs> One time. All right. Whoops. Um, okay, so Crit, or I'm sorry, Bar, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Okay. First of all, the the whole like more people dress up as Snow White thing, it doesn't matter to me. People don't dress up as Vanellope as much, and she's a much more interesting princess than Snow White is. Uh, plus, I... I I can't understand this no personality thing. Like when you see Princess Aurora, she's she she's smart. She doesn't take well to people just coming in and being like, "Hey, you should be in love with me." Um, and Snow White's personality is that she's nice and that she's pretty. Like there's not a lot of not a lot else there. And the fact that you say that she's a MacGuffin, like Snow White becomes a MacGuffin. Like, the prince that just happens to come along and is like, hey, that's that girl that I met that one time before. This is true love. And she's apparently in true love with him. So the idea of the sleep thing, it doesn't matter because they both sleep as a MacGuffin. All right. Okie dokie. This was a good one. Um, bring in Dem Judges. Um, Cody, your vote did not count on the last one, so you get to go first. Oh, this one's tough. This one's tough. Um, Chris came to fight this battle. He yeah. threw a lot of barbs, like a lot. Um, 
He threw a lot of stuff that some he threw some stuff that did not matter. Like I don't care who dresses up for who or blah blah blah. I don't dress up as any of these princesses. Um, uh, but I'm gonna I. From what I heard, I'm gonna lean towards Bar. I'm gonna lean towards uh, Chris on this one. I think Chris oh. just hit way more barbs against him. I don't know. I'm there's three judges, but that was where my vote would have went on this one. All right, Robert, you go next. Yeah, I. I also am going to give this one to Chris. Uh, I think it was a really even fight. I think if Barr had... uh, Barr's closing was really, really good. I needed to hear it just a little bit more in the middle. The uh, the, How they're both in the government, how they both sleep. You got it in there at the very end. Uh, I needed a little bit earlier so that you could expand on it in the closing instead of first bringing it up uh, towards the end. But yeah, I mean, both honestly good picks neither really like fantastic great characters uh, i really did like bars uh, uh stranger danger joke but uh yeah i think i think chris's offense was really strong on this one um so that does mean chris gets a point on the disney one uh i also would have gone with chris for all of the reasons you guys said and more so um all right we are going to move on to the final prep question this is a must hit for Chris, if Barr hits this one, he is the winner. So um, the question is in the category of comedy. And the question is, what is the best action scene in the Cornetto trilogy? Um, so Chris, um, you drafted this category. So you are going to get to go first one minute when you start talking. Okay, so when it comes to Kinetic Trilogy, there are a lot of great action sequences here from. But I don't go with one that doesn't get a lot of love unlike the other two. I'm going with the Rosen. The action sequence I picked is the Bastion fight with between the robot and all of the other characters. Some of the more inventive action sequences. You got Andy just giving a bane, like not breaking somebody bad, to Gary pressing the robot head in with the robot hand to each other thing like it, it's a way humor and action mixed together and done around rap, little music with the great job by Stephen Pike that is amazing and like and it adds to the character that when Oliver the way he really want about his personality and how he appeared that's about to do to everybody else and he like everybody else is just like I have to go on and on, but I don't save him for my rebuttal because they get my thoughts together. Just a lot to say about this. <laughs> All right, time. Okay, Bar, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Chris is right. The best action sequence in the Cornetto trilogy does come from the world's end, but he picked the wrong scene. It's the big fight at the beehive. Yo, there is so much going on that in that scene, and you can appreciate it more because you see everything going on. And then the and then uh, Edgar Wright's like frantic, crazy, kinetic kind of action sequences. You kind of need that. The bathroom scene is great, but the beehive scene is absolute treasure because everyone gets their chance to shine in a really fun, creative way in that moment. And it also showcases why Edgar Wright is such a great, brilliant director when it comes to visual comedy and action scenes. But we'll get to that in the main argument. So I'm going to concede the rest of my time. All right, Barr, the king of conceding 15 seconds. Uh, 
Five minute free form. You guys start when uh, one of you starts talking. Okay. Um, you want to go on to try go first. I want to be next. After you. I've started the last three times, <laughs> but I'm not afraid to continue on. Okay, the problem with the beehive thing, and I do like the sequence, it doesn't get everybody a chance to time. When you come to the bathroom fight, it's so every character written down to each of the characters, and he being the Bruce thing, well, and yeah, right, behind you get one funny line for Andy and his matching head with Foster, but much better when you break the wall by back, you get Oliver saying about appearance that kind of very doing each of the characters a moment to sign, even the friend that put a good fight, but couldn't get, couldn't pull out the good fight, and it showed Gary willingness to help him friend out, and the beehive scene, it just, him trying to drink his drink and then help you out one Jenny and on and on a whimper of a note with Pit Bomb is coming in the last minute that are just gay bashing the robot head in with his arm. It's such epic moments. It's like and it's it's not off everything that we get later on. I I don't think that's a whim. I don't think that ending is a whimper of a note at all. Yeah. It shows how well the, these guys have been able to fight up until this point. And then when you see Pierce Brosnan's character come back again, it's that oh shit moment that the story needs, and that fight scene is the exact encapsulation of yeah. Oh god, but no. it also repeat the let, same. Let Bar keep okay. going. You talk for a minute. Let him keep going. Plus, I don't, I don't understand the idea of not giving everyone a chance in the beehive scene. There's the great scene with Steven and Sam uh, back to back uh, when Pete comes in. It's a great moment, and I think that the pint gag in that fight scene is actually is exactly what gives it that breath of fresh air. The fact that he just wants to finish this fight and everyone keeps coming in and attacking him. I think that is such a refreshing moment of that entire fight scene. You don't get something like that in the bathroom scene. You get plenty of moments. You get like... Sorry, look at the character name. You get Andy just randomly knowing how to fight. You get Gary just like treating people... And knowing how to use a robot arm, you get Oliver almost starting out a fight, and he gets bashed into bashed. It's pretty funny, like, and it the music is destroyed, fantastic. The song they picked for the Beehive scene is very distracting, take away for the epicness of the song. It's just like, and it kind of ruined how Gary is as a character. He really to help his friend. He trying to get any approval. You see him like, oh, Annie, look, and Annie doing something else. You and he throwing the arm to help his other friend out. Like it, but Eggerweight does best is allowing character description in the scene during the scene. You see it in the bastard scene. How did each of the character character line? I don't and, understand and, the idea of him not helping his friends in the beehive scene. There's the scene where he's about to finish his pint and he sees Sam in danger and he's like, fudge. And he goes over and he like takes out the blank that's about that's like taking her on. Plus, uh, Andy's fighting is better in the beehive scene. Oh, you can appreciate it more because he's doing so many different things. He's using all parts of his body. That one belly shot is fantastic. I don't understand how you think that the fighting in the bathroom scene is better than the fighting in the beehive scene from Andy. Because he take a robot, Lily Bane style him. It's so epic. They're backing the head. They'll just carry all of it. Peter carried it. But they use it again in the beehive scene. It's done better in the bathroom as a funny little joke. And then everything, it's just like a compliment who each other character on. Behind it, just like 
Annie Dub pushing shit together, Gary does drinking, like it doesn't show how Gary loved his friend like he does in Bradley. He helped his friend out. He put arms out his one friend out. One it's minute. Kinda, like, oh, he, Gary, Andy, how Gary is. And rips the head off of a blank in the beehive scene. Uh, that's fantastic. Plus the <laughs> the camaraderie in the beehive scene is so much better they're fighting together they're not fighting individually and the other thing that the beehive scene has is the larger space you can see more the kinetic energy and the kinetic fighting is so much more appreciated there's the one scene towards the beginning of the fight where one guy gets punched in the face that one guy punches that guy in the face one guy punches that guy in the face and it's all in one shot in quick succession and you can enjoy it because it's so much more easy to follow in that space but i think the best the ballroom scene done better, especially like Shaun of the Dead, especially Hot Fuzz. I think the bathroom scene speaks of what it is. It's a great, great humor, great action. So Shaun the Robot going to the bathroom, hitting the sink is so great. Time. <laughs> All right. Um, Bar, you are going to close your argument first. One minute when you start talking. I've seen better tight room fight scenes in other medium the hallway scene in old boy and daredevil so tight quarter fight scenes have been done better than in uh the bathroom scene you get to appreciate everything in the beehive scene you get to see how everything works people coming into frame then suddenly going out of frame people popping into frame one person fighting for his friends and for himself, but also just wanting to finish that pint. It's creative. It's really well done. When they hit the fire alarm at the beginning, it sets the tone for the entire scene and it just rides that till the end. There's And the editing is so much better. There's a weird editing scene in the bathroom where Steven's getting pushed in the peat and there's like this weird like shift in editing and it's really noticeable. It's clean. In the beehive scene, it's well shot, it's well choreographed, and the action is so much more intense. Time. All right. Chris, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. So when it comes to Cornetta Best Action Sequence, the bathroom scene's done better. It's great score. The great action that speaks true to who the character are with. Peter trying to hide under the the bathroom because Kevin it to all of his fact appearance to Annie jumping to boost straight rail to gay willing to tell all the cut it served what the fuck moment in the movie that really served what how crazy in the movie they get. It had no music with served as Jerry to better bring action secret Annie breaking the robot guy brain style to gay bashing the guy and to one of the fans almost trying to win it then it speaks to the character oh, I like I love the beehive scene, but it's done better on the film, and the music 20 seconds is probably really distracting for how good the scene is. And it's just like, Bastion scene, a great scene with no music, a score that's so great to listen to, with epicness, with Annie being one of the best action moments, it is that kind of redone again in the beehive sequence. Time. Okay. All right, I get to go first on this one. Um, this was pretty close, actually. I heard a lot of um, I heard a lot. Both competitors did a really good job of ex like describing what their scene is like, what the characters do in the scene, 
And, um, but so I kind of, the, the, those things kind of canceled each other out. What kind of did it over for me was bars hit about, we've seen this bathroom scene a lot in uh, named a couple things. Like we've seen it before and bar actually got into some specific details about how his scene is shot and looks and edited and at a certain point when the actual scenes kind of cancel each other out, that kind of put it over for me. So I'm going to give my point to Barr. Cody, I will go to you next. Yeah, I uh, I just admitted not too long ago, uh, Shaun of the Dead was the one that I saw in 04 and never watched again, and I've never seen the other two. Um, so I'm not very familiar with this trilogy. Um, but Barr painted the better picture for me and explained why his fight scene was better versus... Uh, Chris, so I give Barb the point. Okay, and Robert, you don't get to vote on this one, but where are you going? I, I would have agreed with both of you. I, uh, I'm also not super familiar with either of these scenes. I thought both people, Tim, you kind of explained it really well. As far as explaining their scene, really, really, really great arguments that came out down to who attacked the other one a little bit better, and I think Barb did that just a little bit better in his argument. Alright, so with that, your winner Andrew Barr, by way of knockout. Um, let's start by talking to Mr. Barr. Barr, you have won the match. Um, how are you feeling? This is uh, the first knockout in Fan Zone. So how are you feeling about that? Um, I'm feeling good. There's a few things that I, in some of my matches, that I uh, in the rounds that I forgot to bring up. Um, so... I'm kind of kicking myself for those. Um, but I feel good because Chris put up a really good fight. Um, there were a few things that he would throw at me that I was like, well, didn't think of that. Um, I'm just excited. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to have uh, pulled out the win. Yeah. So um, your next opponent uh, is decided. You are playing the winner of uh, the last match, Nicholas Tuig. Um, <laughs> so you are you are playing mr tuig um, oh god no <laughs> um so are you excited for that match um how are you feeling about debating mr tuig god there he's gonna god dang it he's gonna be real tough um tuig is really really smart <laughs> he's like really smart um and especially there are some categories that i know that he's gonna pick that i'm gonna have to really hunker down and like dive deep into uh <laughs> and educate myself better in um so uh, i'm excited to fight Tuig because uh i like Tuig as a person um he's a lot of fun but um man that's a hard second round for me uh yes i have debated Tuig before and it's not a fun time he makes you feel uh very happy while also hating him at the same time. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Uh, so that'll be coming um, in later on uh, in a month or so after we get through the rest of these round one uh, matches. But congrats on your win. We will see you soon. Um, we'll move over to Chris. Chris, um, you, you played really, really well despite the score. How are you feeling today about the match? I feel like you're a dick. Andrew pull up a really good fight. This is, like, he gave me a run for my money a lot, so I, I was expecting, but, yeah, like, congratulations, Andrew. I thought it was really about fight. This is one of my, I felt it was one of my better debates from recent debates I've been in. Yeah? Yeah, and, you, you, go ahead. Sorry. 
And thank you guys for having me on. This has been really fun. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy you were here. Um, like, yeah, you debated very well today. Um, I think that was a good point. Uh, he definitely gave you a run for your money. It was, it was a fun one to watch. It was uh, exciting, and we're glad that you guys were here. So let's uh, move over to the judges. Uh, Cody, final thoughts on the match. What are you thinking? Um. Barr is exactly who I thought he was going to be in this match. Um, saying a bunch of uh, he may use more adjectives to sell and themes to sell his pick than one of my best friends, Robert the Hobbit Parker. I'm telling you, um, Spider, sorry. Um, well, so like that is that is something that I that first round I think he I was lost with how many things infectious and crazy and blah, blah, blah. Well, and Nick, Nick Tuick's coming in with a sledgehammer. So I don't know what's going to happen next time, but I'm excited to see pretentious versus uh, a sledgehammer. It's going to be great. Yeah. And Chris did really well too. Yeah. Uh, Robert, your final thoughts. Yeah. Chris, Chris did really well. I think uh, if uh, yeah, he did really well. Bar did really well. Cody's absolutely right. Bar has really, Bar is very good about getting down to the core of the question and kind of breaking it down bit by bit and arguing for those little like minor points, uh, which is definitely a style that some people do. And I'm interested to see, interested to see how that debating style goes against two wigs. Uh, but Chris is nothing to hang his head about. He actually did really, really good today uh, defending his points for the questions that he drafted. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, that'll do it for today's episode of Fan Zone. Uh, come back in two weeks. We have uh, Brian Michaels versus Jacob E. West. Um, I can say that we've already filmed it, and um, it's a disaster in the best way humanly possible. Uh, I haven't laughed that hard in a long time, but it's uh, whoo! So join us two weeks. Uh, for that match. Uh, that'll be a good one. Other things to look forward to. Uh, we've got Ryan O'Regan going up against um, RJ, which is going to be an interesting match as well. Those are two people that it's going to be interesting to see how they fight each other. And then, of course, the newly announced Nicholas Tuig versus Andrew Barr coming soon as well. So uh, for all of us here, Andrew and Chris and the judges today, Cody and Robert and myself. Thank you guys so much for watching. We'll see you two weeks with another match. See ya.